Meet me at The Chasen. I'm your host, Jennifer Fields. How can we both start to complicate the narrative of, quote, traditional African art collection and not take contemporary African art and segregate it into the African gallery, right? And like, how can we do that in a way that feels transparent and thoughtful and really helps us understand all of it better? Amy Gilman is the director of the Chazen Museum of Art, and she wants you to think about a couple of things not addressed in the opening clip. What decisions were made in order for works of art to be on display, and what are we not seeing? The new exhibit is entitled Insistent Presence. The focus is contemporary African artists from the continent and diaspora. The exhibition features objects from the Chazen's permanent collection and four new acquisitions selected by guest curator Margaret Nagawa. According to Gilman, the goal for this exhibition is not only to reintroduce established artists, but also to support and bring new voices into the conversation about the insistent presence of African artists in the museum world. It actually really started back in 2018 when I was um, approached by Sarah Geyer and Scott Strauss, who were then professors in uh, the English and uh, Political Science Department, respectively, here at UW-Madison. They are collectors of contemporary African art, and they had an idea, and their idea was that through a family foundation, um, if they were to arrange a, a fairly substantial gift, um, would we be interested in having that money be able to be spent uh, directly on acquiring contemporary African art with the intention of really changing the museum's collection, really building a, a very solid base in this area, and, and very importantly to both of them, the idea of fostering relationships with artists and institutions around the continents, right? So like really beginning that for the museum. Now that there's a very strong uh, research and um, teaching relationship between many um, uh, countries in Africa and the UW-Madison, but um, not the museum, right? So, so they started this conversation with me in 2018, and from the very beginning, we all wanted there to be a focus on um, contemporary artists of all stripes, so lots of different media, and we wanted a mix of artists who were really well-established, but also artists who were emerging, and who were younger and perhaps not as well known. And we wanted to acquire over enough time so that we could really get some depth, but not so long that it felt like we were, we were just sort of trickling out. Um, and eventually the original intention from the very beginning was to have an exhibition and a catalog but we didn't set a timeline on it. And I think that's actually part of the generosity of these two donors is really thinking that uh, this kind of thing can take time and you wanna give it the right amount of time to develop. And so beginning really in 2019, when Catherine arrived, 
Catherine Alcascas, who's the museum's chief curator, uh, she really put together the first round, uh, or all the rounds, but really the, that first round of acquisitions and acquired works for the museum's collection that are real anchor pieces, not just for this collection and for this exhibition, but really for the museum's permanent collection in perpetuity. Uh, and then uh, it really developed from there. One of the things that would always irritate me was that you'd go to the African collection and it was all antiquities. Yeah. And they were all in one space. Like, yeah. you better walk through this room and get all of it. And one of the things that I've talked about or spoke about with other curators and other museum directors was that sometimes, especially when it comes to some contemporary works, especially when it, and it can include contemporary African works, if it's not donated by an outside source, sometimes you just can't get them. And the gallery collection or the museum's collection can be based on what is available and what's been given. Am I close? Is that yeah. the reason why we sometimes don't see particular works or works from you know contemporary African artists? Is that part of the issue? That is certainly part of the issue. Part of it is that... Uh, all muse all art museum collections, but certainly I think ours specifically, is a collection of collections. And although the museum has acquired through purchasing throughout its entire history, uh, the bulk of the collection has come through the generosity of donors who have acquired the works in advance, right? So for example, we have a particularly excellent group of holdings in mid 20th century sculpture and works of art on paper about sculpture. And that is because we have the Lane collection and the Lanes collected uh, artists such as Louise Nevelson and Lee Bontecu and John Chamberlain and Varjan Bogosian in depth and works on paper by them that were sometimes directly related to the sculptures and sometimes more tangentially related. But that means that, for example, we have probably seven Louise Nevelson sculptures. Now that's pretty unusual for any art museum. Most of them have one, right? So it, it gives us this really wonderful depth in a particular area. But it also means that, you know, we, you know, we're not acquiring actively in that area right now. And it all really reflects the very particular taste of those, of those uh, donors. And now that has some advantages, but it also means that, for example, like that selection is not particularly diverse in terms of the kinds of artists that are in that group. There are uh, women represented in that group, um, really important women, but also, but no, no real breadth, right? It's dominated by men and they are entirely white. I say that with a little qualifier because I guess I can't say that for sure. But so when we, when you go around a museum or anybody goes around a museum, you're seeing a history of decisions that were made, not just by the museum itself, but by collectors and curators and directors of the museum and related to the museum you know th throughout history and how they and how those particular objects end up there you know 
can be through a variety of ways. So one of the things that you can do with your R limited acquisition funds is look at pockets where you are unlikely to get work donated and that you really want to be able to represent or collect in depth or, um, or fill in gaps and use those funds to be able to do that. But it also means that, you know, you're really stretching dollars in a wide variety of ways. And the way the museum's endowment works is that not all funds can be used for acquisition of all objects. Hmm. Some uh, endowment funds are specific. They're specific to Chinese art, maybe, maybe art of a certain medium or of a certain time period or of a certain geographic location, right? And so we also have to balance what are we actually capable of doing in the market. But then when you have an opportunity like this come along, and I was very interested in diversifying the collection in this particular way, I think that also, to your point, often as museum goers, we are kind of trained to think about certain cultures as fixed in time, right? So, you know, it's, you know, if you're acquiring, you know, Greek objects, you're like, oh, they're from ancient Greece. And you're like, you know, people have continued to live there. (laughs) No. (laughs) Right? And similarly with Africa, right? So a lot of objects that um, have been collected historically from the continent. And the continent is so enormous and and so diverse in terms of, of the kinds of um, communities and uh, objects that are produced for a wide variety of, of reasons. Is that what you really are seeing is often the point of view of uh, Western colonizers coming into the continent at a specific moment and specific communities and um, uh, groups at like right at this moment and then it becomes fixed in time, right? Because that's when either, you know, the British or the Belgians or the Belgians or whoever are coming in and they're seeing things and then they are acquiring them, right? Through a variety of methods, if some you can't, you questionable. You can't see Amy's face right now, but it's t- doing all kinds of side eyeing. <laughs> <laughs> so, so this is where you know. Then a lot of collections are uh, that we are that are foundational to museums today are created with a lot of these objects, and that creates a market for those kind of objects. So even. A hundred years later, it is those kinds of objects that continue to be valued and seen as the you know, African art with quotes around it. Okay. So part of my interest in this, and I, uh, I hope and I, I really believe that part of the interest of um, the, the donors was um, helping everyone understand that, that Africa is not a single entity. It is not fixed in time. It has vital communities who have 
very wide-ranging histories and traditions, etc. And there are contemporary artists living in all of these spaces or who were born there and live elsewhere now, etc., who are sometimes like sort of appropriating some of the looks of the in quote African art or those traditions specifically, but really talking about them as a, you know, in, in contemporary practice. So not trying to replicate certain things, but really trying to understand our world, which is one of the things that contemporary artists are particularly brilliant at is actually taking our world and reflecting it back to us in ways that help us think about it differently. I'm wondering how much of that is the museum being tied to a university and also being tied to what the Madison public is willing to digest in the moment. How much of that are you gearing towards or how much of it is influenced by what the climate of the community is at the time? So I guess I would say... I think that our role as a university art museum is very important and it does impact the collection um, in certain ways. And certainly we try to be responsive to faculty who are trying to teach from the collection to ensure that there are works that are relevant to them that will be out uh, during the academic year. But that doesn't limit us to those things. The other part of it is that and, and actually, this is a really good example. The African collection is a very good example of this. There um, it was an eminent African historian, um, Henry Jewell, who was part of the art history department for decades. And Henry had a profound impact on the collection of African art here at the museum. It was not only, you know, he often would uh, connect the then director with collectors, but he would also, you know, scout acquisitions during periods and things like that. Now, because of that, the contem- the African collection, the traditional African collection here at the museum is very reflective of Henry Drewell's research interests, as you would expect. But there's not a lot of other Africanists on campus in art history. So it really is very much about, you know, Henry Jewell's research interest and point of view. And so you don't know that as a visitor, right? You just think this is African art, right? Because that's what we're presenting. But it has already been filtered many, many times. And then through an expert who's actually looking himself at a very narrow area, right? Um, and not that he couldn't look more broadly, but it is actually part of the thing that I hope that people will understand over time about museum collections is that, uh, is, is to really not just understand, but actually question for yourselves what are the decisions that were made in order for this to be here today? And what are we not seeing because other decisions were made or somebody that wants to focus on X or uh, you know, something is particularly conservation sensitive and can't be out on view, right? There's lots of reasons. And we don't, we haven't historically been that transparent about how those decisions get made or what it means to understand the history of objects in that way. Now, when it comes to the, the what 
the Madison community or the university community expects, in my experience so far, they're both are actually incredibly open to seeing things differently as long as you are able to give everybody some context, right? And uh, my predecessor, uh, Russell Penchenko, had already acquired several contemporary African um, objects. He acquired the Ella Natsui piece, which is an amazing work. And that work tends to be hung in the contemporary galleries and not in the African galleries. And one of the things that we want to start to really examine, not solely through this exhibition, which is really focused, but then as that translates into thinking about the permanent collection installation, is how can we both start to um, complicate the narrative of, tra quote, traditional African uh, art collection and not take contemporary African art and segregate it into the African gallery, right? And it's like, how can we do that in a way that feels transparent and thoughtful and, uh, and really um, helps us understand all of it better. Um, but the other thing, and, and I don't want to discount this because it certainly is an important part of it, is that if you, if you started acquiring contemporary Chinese painting 20 years ago, you would have been right ahead of the curve. And if you had waited five years, you probably wouldn't have been able to afford it. Mm. Right? Like there, there's a, like a very, like on that particular, like there was this very steep uh, market acceleration that happened. And uh, we started acquiring in the contemporary African market um, right at the point where there is a, a real surge in interest. And so part of what the strategy was that uh, Catherine would acquire for the museum, a couple of these objects, um, the Togu and the Sabande are great examples that are really anchor pieces. And those artists are really well established, right? Um, uh, showing internationally, um, acquired by uh, museums all over the globe, etc. But really then starting to delve into like, okay, can we really start to look at artists who are not already completely on everybody's radar so that the collection becomes very distinctive and has a mix of, if you're familiar, you might actually recognize a few of them, but you might have some surprises, right? And if you're not familiar, then you might really get surprised by the kind of depth that's present. What one? But another thing I want to say before we before I forget about Henry Drew, who's a professor of mine. What's really what I also have to check myself with when I go into African art exhibits is to look at the dates, because there's a Lamidi Fakiye in there that I was there when he was when he came here to bring that piece. And so just because it's in this room where there are antiques does not necessarily mean that it's not a contemporary work, which is, yes. it, it's easy to like, just sort of get blinded by all of it and think that it's all from a hundred years ago. Yes. Well, some of it could be from like 10, I think that was like 10 or 11 years ago. Exactly. So th that's something to keep in mind. Mm -hmm. And my other thing is what drives that market? 
Like what causes that sudden interest in an area of collection? What causes suddenly the African contemporary art to be hot? Well, is it you? Yeah, yeah, it's totally me. (laughs) Um, I mean, I do think that certain, so the art market is large, it's global, and it has certain hot pockets to it. And things tend to go up and down, right? And this is not just true of contemporary work, right? This is true. So, for example, if you were acquiring, if you were a collector of American paintings, traditionally understood to be American paintings, like 17th through early, you know, late 19th century or whatever, and you wanted to acquire during the um, late 90s and early 2000s, the market was so hot for that, that work because both Alice Walton and George Lucas were building American art collections at the time. And they were buying everything and they were driving the market in that case. Um, so now, actually, that was a good time to acquire American paintings of certain stripes, right? Um, so you have to, part of it is just knowing what what's what are areas that other parts of the market aren't paying as close attention to and not getting sucked into, oh, this is so hot right now, I'm going to go out and buy something for more money than I should. So, but part of the reason why you go and you do that, right, you find things that are undervalued at the moment is that the market will eventually figure that out too. And it's not, you know, it's not like, it's not, it's a mix, right? It's galleries and it's collectors and, you know, people want to know that they're in on something that's kind of emerging um, and that they want to be somebody who can say that I acquired a work early, right? There's lots of reasons why you do it. And there's a risk to that, especially in the contemporary market, because some of those artists won't, won't have long careers, right? They might not. But, uh, but in some cases, right, you, um, you, you are acquiring early enough and thoughtfully enough that it turns out that you look really prescient, right, um, in terms of decision making. And as a director of a museum that has, you know, a fairly limited acquisition budget in general, it's like I'm always looking for the things that are some that other people are not paying attention to because we collect in perpetuity. So I don't need, I don't want to collect at the top of the market and I don't have the money to do that. Right. Um, I want to be able to, and there are certain things that are always be out of our reach unless they're donated. Right. And it's not really worth our time and energy to go after those from a, from, you know, like paying to acquire them standpoint. Let's go, let's, really look for things that are, that fulfill the needs that we have that are, um, where we really feel like we can, we can like add value to the whole collection. And in the case of this initiative, how can we also do that in a way that truly supports artists? And, uh, and so, you you know, you want to, you know, sometimes buy directly from artists if they're not represented. Um, uh, also, you know, working to support um, 
galleries that are actually on the continent and um, you know are, are really driving that market there and really helping with that and then you know working really uh, to raise the profile of some of the emerging artists that we're bringing into our collection and sure we want to do that because we want people to pay attention to our collection but also we want to do that because we believe that artists have something really special to say to the world and it's part of our job to bring them to a wider audience. And so I hope that that is what will happen with this exhibition. And one of the other crucial decisions that we made, and I'm sure you'll get into this more when you talk to Catherine and then of course when you talk to Margaret, was was the decision that we made to hire an outside curator. And uh, we, Catherine and I knew that we wanted to do this from very early on. We wanted somebody uh, who really had a foundation uh, of uh, sort of both artistic and curating, um, a, a not from a solely Western perspective. And Margaret, who is both an artist and a curator um, and, and, uh, and is now a PhD student at Emory uh, and was born in Uganda, is, is really ideal for that. She is also an emerging uh, voice and we want to be able to foster that. That's part of our brief, right? Is to be able to foster scholarship and, and uh, grow, help grow people's careers. And, but we also, I think it's really important to center um, a curatorial point of view, even though a, a percentage of the artworks have been acquired in advance, but Margaret has had the opportunity to acquire a few herself that, you know, a curatorial point of view that really comes from the space and not from somebody looking at the space from outside. That's why I think, for me, insistent presence is such a spot-on way to describe the exhibit because you have this, from the outside looking in, you could, it's almost like you could see a jump. If you don't know that Elinatsui is in the Contemporary Gallery, you don't know where it is, there's this sort of outside perception that it's a jump in time period, but it's not. And for me, insistence has several meanings, like it does for everybody, but that's sort of like we've always been here. We've mm. always been here. Yes. You just didn't know where to look. We have always been here. Right. And taking up space, self-identifying, all these tendrils, all these parts of the exhibit are like, you're not necessarily peeling the layers off the onion to, to um, reveal something that's always been there, but it's sort of like this groundswell. It's like this bubbling up of all this information and all of these works and all of these things that, that have always been here but here's somewhere where we couldn't see them. I don't even know. It's almost like a ghost. It's like a ghostly presence that's sort of always not necessarily haunting you in a bad way, but always just sort of reminding you that we've always been here. Like, it's always been here. Well, and, and I, I love the way the idea of insistent presence um, grounds the whole uh, collection and exhibition in the human body, but also acknowledges that it's not an exhibition about 
the body and about, um, like it's not an exhibition about portraiture, right? Although there's portraiture in the exhibition. Um, but it allows, for example, you know, artists who are really exploring um, like the history of, of certain um, physical space, right? And, and the kind of remnants of um, human uh, interaction with the space that has left a, a kind of indelible mark on the landscape in various ways. And, uh, and the kind of... Um, I think ghostly presence is a good way of describing it, but it's also, it's this like see, unsee, see, unsee, where you actually, like there are a number of, of works where you see the figure and then you realize that the, that the whole thing is about something more than the figure or the figure is not present at all, but it requires a human in order for the whole thing to be complete, right? And uh, so I do, I think it's incredibly evocative. And I love the fact that, uh, Margaret is deliberately calling back to her own sort of curatorial ancestors, right? She, she talks about um, a very specific uh, curator who was widely known in, um, around internationally and, you know, as one of the most important influences on her and the, the phrase insistent presence comes from him. This is not about the body as an object. This is about the, uh, the body as an inspiration and what that is. What is a body? What is presence? Is it physical? Is it ephemeral? Is it a suggestion? Right. Is it hopefully something you get to? There's all these different ways to play with what that means in terms of what does it mean to be African? What does it mean to be African-American? What does contemporary look like? Who gets to decide what that looks like? What happens after? Like, where does this go from here? How is this? And I'll get to my question one of these days. Mm -hmm. Is this exhibit a way to reintroduce the community to the works that Chazen has? And where does it go from here? How long do I get to bask in this presence? How long can I feel this? <laughs> well, so... One of the things, reasons why we wanted to bring them all together for an actual exhibition is to be able to talk about them in this way, right? But, uh, and we hope that the exhibition will travel a little bit, right, um, to maybe one or two other venues around the country because we think it's really important and we think that audiences will really respond to it. But the intention eventually is not to necessarily have a gallery that's contemporary African art, it is actually to incorporate many of these objects into the stories that we are developing for the eventual permanent collection reinstallation. And what I would anticipate is that, um, you know, some of them may very well be cornerstones of, of parts of that installation, and some of them may also um, be put in dialogue with other objects from other cultures and other time periods um, as a way of, of continuing to open up this kind of um, uh, more porous and fruitful understanding about how cultures actually interact with each other. And how, and I think what I'm really excited to see is how, because you mentioned it earlier, how do you put contemporary African artworks in a gallery without segregating them to, okay, this is the black stuff. Over here, you know, so, so that like, how do we re-examine that? How do you, 
how do you blend all these works in a way that doesn't, I have to say it, oftentimes when people walk in the galleries, and I'm guilty of it myself, is to assume that everything in here is by somebody from European descent, unless I'm told that. Because that's traditionally what we've seen, unless you go to the room with the Asian art and the indigenous mm-hmm. art and the African art, and most of them are, and you know, um, historical works. I almost said antiquated. I don't want to say that. <laughs> historical works. And so that, for me, I'm interested in seeing how that develops, how that unfolds, because it's such a difficult thing to do. You don't want it to have, you don't want to segregate it. You don't want to have it be this, this anomaly in a room full of whiteness. You want it to be part of this room. And I don't even know if that's a question. Good luck with that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, what you're really getting at is, so, you know, one of the links between the Romancipation Project and this project is that uh, like they're not the same thing right, at all, but they are taking really close looks at objects, right? They're really grounding objects. And one of the things that we have really wanted to focus on with the permanent collection installation is really, we want to learn the lessons of the Romancipation Project, and we want to have a more nuanced and complex understanding about what it means to tell a diverse set of stories right? Which is not solely about representation, right? It's like, it's not like, okay, we're going to get this number of artists who are black and this number of artists who are Latina, and we're going to put them all in a room together, right? It's, it's actually, can we start to, by really grounding our work in deep looks at objects, start to create links between objects that didn't appear to be related to each other, but that then when you are actually looking at all of them, they tell a really complex and interesting story about something that you're trying to unpack. And I think museums are actually particularly well suited for this because uh, we can actually ground everything in the objects because that's really what we are about is the objects. So you can see things. And so some of the things that Margaret talks about in her um, essays and in the catalog um, are things that, that are really important aspects of uh, these artists' history and their lives and what they are grappling with. And those things are very important to understand in that context of this object, but they are also things that have relationships to other objects in the collection. And that combined together helps us understand our humanity better, our, you know, our global society in different ways, in ways that I hope will sort of further this idea that we have lots of really important, serious, and complex things to grapple with as, as individuals, as communities, as a country, globally. And the role of the museum should be to find ways of actually helping us do that, that creates a dialogue and a learning space and not a just like, I'm going to lecture at you about the history of this object. So I'm going to ask you a question that is difficult for me to formulate. It might be hard for you to hear. Okay. You ready? Yeah. So re 
went crazy in the best possible way. Now you have insistent presence coming in. Both deal with African and African-American worlds, situations. See, I'm having such a hard time saying this that I can't think of it. African-American subject matter is difficult. It's hard, it's hard to approach. I'm going to say it. You can take it. I, if this is wrong, you can correct me. Do you feel like you're being centered in this conversation? Are other museums looking to you like, okay, how do we do this? Like, we're museums that are run by majority white people. You seem to, you clearly have an understanding of this subject matter and how to get to it and how to make it approachable. Are other museums looking at you as sort of like, do you feel yourself being put in a position where people may be asking you questions that you're kind of like, that's, I'm a part of this. This is not all, you know what I mean? Like I do know what you mean. I, I don't know the answer to that part about other museums. I do know that my role in this, not only with Remancipation, but with Insistent Presence and with the upcoming permanent collection reinstallation, is to ensure that we have lots of voices. And part of my job, right, is, is I mean, I am the director of the museum. I will always have a big voice, so I don't have to make sure that that happens. That just happens, right? The actual thing I can use my big voice for is making sure that others are able to participate and in not in like, oh, I'm asking you to participate and then you provide me with this thing and then we, you know, use it. it's actually like, like the decision to hire Margaret, right? Like Catherine and I, it was not appropriate for us to be the curators on this exhibition. And we wanted to do something that was really grounded in our as a museum's values. And one of those things is the idea of really fostering the next generation of curators. And this project really called for that. So you, you know, you go out and you find someone who we didn't know before, but who come, who came, you know, like highly recommended from people who was doing this incredible work and who I know is going to have this amazing career. Right. And, or maybe, you know, like this little part of it at the beginning that helps her do that. And so part of my job is not, like, this is not about, like, I mean, it, it's a total legitimate critique. Like, it is easy, I think, as a director, as a white woman, to slip into kind of like, oh, like the savior mentality, right? Like, you're going to be like, okay, well, we're going to, like, Amy has figured this out. Like, no, Amy has not figured out anything. What I have figured out it, you know, like, I haven't figured out anything about, about like, the... I can't give you a list of the things you're supposed to do as a museum director, but the thing I can do is be like, you have to get out of your own way, right? You have to bring in people who are really smart and creative, and then you have to ensure that they can do what you've asked them to do in a way that does not make it what I would do. It makes it what they would do the best thing. And that, I think, is actually... It's not so much about the Romancipation Project and then this one and then the next one. It's actually like, um, there's not going to be a checklist on how to do this, right? There is not, you know, there's going to be a process and the process is going to require continually being humbled and knowing that, in my case, my job 
is to make sure that we have the right people in the right places to be able to do something extraordinary. And then I have to get the resources to do it. And I have to make sure that people don't get like, they don't get stuck or worried or move things out of their way. And do I, am I always successful at that? No. Do I sometimes get in my own way? Yes. But like, that's the goal. It's really interesting. The idea of, of legacy and ego, like, what do you want your legacy to be? Do you want your legacy to be the person at the center of these things or do you almost, do you want your legacy to be not necessarily an insistent presence, but a presence that is more invisible? With what I do, people always assume that it's about me, but it's not it has nothing to do with me. I'm just a <laughs> conduit for questions. I try to figure out what other people might want to know and and ask it in a way that's accessible for people who are curious. It's not about Jonathan going out and doing these things. It's about who can I talk to? that can give us something else to think about, right? Or, or, or help us approach something in a way that may be more comfortable or maybe a way that's a little bit more scary, but still we want to approach that thing. And I think that what often happens, or from my limited perspective of museums and galleries, it's often the, as with Henry Drewell and the collections, it's often what the particular person is interested in, what their specialty mm -hmm. is in, mm -hmm. rather than this sounds like an amazing idea, who's the best person to do it? Mm -hmm. So this idea, that, that sort of like, not ego death, but just like sort of like understanding, as my mother would say, knowing your place, <laughs> you know, knowing your lane, doing what you're supposed to do in a way that lifts other people, but not necessarily still under your umbrella or under your wing. It's a lifting up mm -hmm. of people, but without necessarily like your wing shadowing over them. Well, I do think, I mean, when you talk about legacy, right, uh, before I became a director and even like the first couple of years I became a director, I would have said like, I just want to know that, that when I leave a place, it's better than I found it. Not because it was bad before, but because you should try to leave a place better than you found it. And now, especially because I'm so focused on people, right? And honestly, all of these projects are about people, right? All of these, every single one of the projects that we do is about people. I mean, it, all of these people love objects and we're all interested in objects, but you know, it, the museum is a mausoleum without people, whether visitors or staff. Is to me, like the best legacy I could ask for, it's long after I'm dead, would be for there to be a lot of people out there in the world who are working in museums of various stripes at various levels who, when they are asked about their career, say that there was a moment that they worked, you know, in a long narrative, right, that they worked with me either on an individual project or... Um, as a staff person or whatever, in a way that was influential to them in a positive way and that it helped them. That's, I mean, that's the legacy, right? Like the legacy is that people are out there saying things about you that mean that you impacted them in a way that was positive in their own trajectory, not in how I see them. I love a museum director that talks about people when they're focused on objects. <laughs> <laughs>
You've been listening to Meet Me at the Chazen. Our guest, Amy Gilman, is the director of UW-Madison's Chazen Museum of Art. Meet Me at the Chazen is a production of the Chazen Museum of Art on the campus of UW-Madison in Madison, Wisconsin. For more information about the museum, its collections and exhibitions, visit chazen.wisc.edu. I'm your host, Jennifer Fields. Thank you for listening.